Hello, good evening, good evening, and welcome to Adar. Um, my name is Ethan Tucker. I'm so happy to welcome everyone who is here this evening uh, to this Beit Midrash. Uh, welcome for, uh, first of all, to first-timers. If it's your first time here, uh, we hope it will be the first of many. Uh, and thank you for joining the space of uh, Torah and learning that we create together. Uh, if you are a returning uh, person to this Beit Midrash, thank you for coming back and for continuing to uh, make this uh, a space of learning as well. I want to acknowledge also Hadar's uh, chair of the board, David Gilberg, who's here with us this evening, and so many other folks who uh, have been a part of this learning community over the years, including alumni of our full-time programs, uh, and last but not least, uh, the full-time fellows who are here learning Torah from morning till night uh, and anchoring this space for all of us in the broader community. Uh, it's really such an honor to uh, kick off uh, and introduce this series. Uh, this series happening this week and next uh, is really a manifestation of what lies at the heart of this Beit Midrash at Hadar. And that is deep learning that is applied to the key questions of what it is to live as a human being and a Jew in the contemporary world. And my colleague, Rabbi Aviva Richman, uh, is really an embodiment of the combination of Talmud Torah, serious study, sensitivity and creativity that we really so need in today's world, particularly around the topic that we'll begin tonight. So it's with that I want to invite up my colleague, Rabbi Viva, to take us forward on this topic of rabbinic voices and sexual assault. Thank you. Um, great to be here this evening, um, and I want to thank Hajar for all the, all the support and community and learning that has happened here, um, in addition to many other conversation partners before we launch into our learning. Um, just, it's amazing to be here together to learn about this topic. Maybe next time we'll, I don't know, learn about the blessing for rainbows or something a little bit more cheery. Um, but I really appreciate you all coming out to study something that is so difficult. Um, why do we need to come together to study Torah related to the topic of sexual assault? To quote one friend I was talking with recently, she said, does there need to be a Jewish frame on everything? I think the question is compounded when we are talking about a matter of contemporary law and policy, particularly in America, um, when the legal sources of the Torah on this topic are not really in effect or enforceable. And we might do better to spend our time um, poring over the complex history of American law and precedents in various states um, about how to establish sexual assault, rape, things that have ranged from utmost resistance to affirmative consent. There's really a complicated legal history in America. Is it a waste of time to devote time to a text or texts that don't really affect contemporary policy in any obvious way? I want to suggest that it is important to study Torah on this topic um, for a number of reasons. The first is that taking an approach that focuses only on legal policy, legal policy that is in effect, is quite <coughs> short-sighted. The power of law is deeply embedded in culture. And knowledge of legal policy alone may actually do very little. 
to shift people's behavior, even if it does end up having consequences for people who are convicted of particular crimes. Um, in, a recent, in a recent workshop that I attended for uh, leaders of various Jewish organizations, it was run through the Jewish Women's Fund, organized by Martin Kaminer, I learned a lot from Fran Suppler. She's a leading expert on sexual harassment in the workplace. And she was quoted in a recent New York Times piece saying that sexual harassment trainings don't work. Her point was that trainings that focus only on informing people of legal policies do very little to actually improve a situation in a workplace and can even make things worse. And she stressed over and over again that what really matters is the culture of a workplace. What really matters is having a competent culture. So as we learn through various passages from the Torah and rabbinic tradition from the Talmud and medieval authorities, I want to urge this lens of culture. Whether or not the texts we are studying carry any legal weight as enforceable policy, us, we, as people of the book, have to own the fact that Torah plays a pivotal role in our Jewish culture. What we read in our cherished texts, in our Torah that we carry out so lovingly each week in Shul and Shabbat, um, and more importantly, how we interpret what is in this Torah, is a critical part of shaping the culture of our Jewish community's approaches to sexual assault. And I want to go a little bit further and suggest that Torah can be an important voice that sometimes affirms and sacralizes the kinds of ideas we might come to know through a contemporary outlet, um, such as media, um, and sometimes productively differs, offers different language to challenge or qualify or offer a little bit more nuance as a counter voice to something that we might read in the New York Times or in a feminist theory class or talk about in a conversation. If Torah is being what Torah should be, it should be able to participate and ideally contribute to a larger conversation, a larger discourse, as a respected source of wisdom, not only to the inner circle of people who might particularly like to study Torah, but ideally to a much wider world. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that studying Torah on this topic will magically make anything better. It can make things worse. Torah is called a potent drug. It can be a sam chaim or sam mavet, a drug that brings death or a drug that brings life, depending on how it is used and interpreted. We don't really have to look far in recent public media to know that those who claim the mantle of religion in general and Torah in particular can sometimes fall on the wrong side of the scales, exacerbating rather than improving the problem of sexual assault in our communities. So the question for us tonight is how can Torah and learning Torah act as a sam chaim, a life-affirming potion, a force that propels forward a sense of human dignity and holds accountable those who trample upon the dignity of others. I want to suggest two possibilities. The first is that we have to confront what Torah says on this topic. 
what Torah has contributed and perhaps con continues to contribute to this conversation. Uh, this isn't obscure. It shows up in fundamental parts of our traditions, like the story of Avraham or the story of porn. Um, to quote an anecdote that I heard recently, there is something in Torah that can allow a visibly orthodox man to stand up in a workshop about victims of sexual assault and say that the Torah doesn't think that rape is a crime. How is it that Torah can be invoked as a life-negating force in this way? How must Torah be understood to be part of a force for life? As we will see this evening, this isn't about some relatively small percentage of particular people being the victims of this kind of view of Jewish tradition. This is really about how we tell our most central stories. The story of Avram and Sarah, the story of Purim, and, and what kind of culture we create when we cherish this Torah of ours. If we don't properly acknowledge and address what is in Torah, we leave it open to be a life-negating drug, rather than a life-affirming elixir. To be clear, you can consider this the trigger warning, um, though I don't know if this particular class needs one. Um, this means that most of the texts, at least many of the texts we look at tonight, they're not fuzzy, feel-good Torah. There might be pieces of Torah here that feel so toxic, especially at first glance, that they might literally make us want to throw up to totally expunge these words from our souls, from our lives, and from our bodies. There may be some moments in our learning where people in this room find what I'm doing to sound like apologetics, trying to salvage an essentially unsalvageable text by imposing meanings that it never had. On the other hand, some people tonight might find my critique or interpretation of certain texts to be entirely heretical. Some people here may have already decided to distance themselves or disown, disinherit a number of the texts we'll look at. And I respect that for some people at some points, it might be the healthiest thing to do. But it doesn't help solve the problem that what we really want to disown about these texts remains so alive in certain ways in our world to this day. Pretending that some verses in the Torah don't exist doesn't automatically make our world any better. Working through difficult texts of Torah can act as a mirror to draw our attention to the ways in which the difficulties, quote-unquote, of the text continue to exist in our world. And this can give us language to name problems so that we can try to address these problems more strategically. But I think we can and must expect more in our encounter with Torah. If we learn Torah in a way that is sensitive, that is creative, that brings in all that we know from our experience in the world and the experiences of others, then Torah should be able to play a role in imagining, envisioning, and ideally enacting a more redemptive reality. In short, it can be a source of healing. This is all very tricky, complicated, requires a lot of creativity, and I'm grateful to have all of you here as partners in paving a path of Talmud Torah on this <clears throat> uh, we can send out source sheets. Just going to give you a little highlight of what's to come this evening. Um, this evening in our first session together, called The Power of Definition, Assault, Coercion, and Consent in Jewish Law, 
we're going to focus primarily on legal texts that define sexual coercion, consent, and assault. Um, I'm going to focus on texts that are particularly about women as victims of sexual assault, though I know the phenomenon is much broader. Um, and the canon of rabbinic texts has a lot to say about more than um, just the case of women as victims of sexual assault. Um, and I hope that our learning will have constructive application towards other groups who are targets of sexual assault. Um, I'm going to do a format that's a little different than one I usually do. I'm actually going to basically lecture straight through a first section, we'll have some time for questions, responses, comments, um, and then we'll move on. I'll present another section and again have time for Q&A. I'm doing that because we could basically all respond for an hour and a half to the first passage that we look at in the Torah. And I do want to encourage all of you, if you have an hour and a half of responses in your head about any particular text at any particular moment, you should write down all of your thoughts about it. And I would love to see them um, at the end of our session. Okay. Um, so we're going to start by looking at how biblical categories are interpreted by the rabbis in the Mishnah, the Talmud, and medieval authorities. And in doing this, um, this evening, I basically want to make three points. Number one, the possibility for sexual consent, for there to be consent, is deeply embedded in context. Consent can only exist within a culture that notices, cares about, and condemns acts of sexual violence. The role of leadership and community is critical for creating a culture that cares. Two, part of creating a culture that cares is the power of definition and the development of legal language to name sexual assault as assault. Number three, in a culture that doesn't care, people can unintentionally be drawn into perpetuating acts of sexual violence. And the question is how to hear the voice and care about the experience of victims to pave a path towards a shift in culture and the reality of human dignity. There's also three points I want to make about method, how we approach text, which, which text we're looking at. Number one, it's important to confront legal texts that speak directly to cases of sexual violence committed against women's bodies. Number two, it is also critical to broaden our lens. Look at sources and law that is about bodies in general, assault against bodies in general. Um, in this case, we'll look at sources about personal injury and assume that women's bodies are part of that story. Number three, it is important, though difficult, given the constraint of our canon, to work with sources that treat women as agents, people who have voices, people who are subjects of the text, um, while being aware of the complexity of trying to find that and interpret that within a tradition that is not offered by women. Okay, here we go. So we're on our source sheet now. <coughs> Looking at part one, leadership, community, and a culture that cares. 
Um, we're going to start here with verses in the book of Devarim, where we will see there's a distinction between a city and a field. Um, and what we are aiming towards here is defining that distinction between city and field ultimately as a question of, is this a situation where people care or people don't care about the act that's being committed? Um, okay. So this passage here in Devarim, it deals with the case of an illicit sex act with a quote-unquote betrothed virgin, Na'ara Bitula Ma'orasa. And these verses give the most explicit criteria in the Torah for, di for differentiating a sex act based on its context. The concern in this text is, in what context is the woman considered complicit in an act of adultery? And in what context is she considered an innocent victim of an act of sexual violence? A few caveats before we delve into the text itself. Number one, you will notice that the language of consent is not used in this passage at all. Number two, to reiterate, the issue at stake is not about whether the male perpetrator's crime is a crime of rape. His capital crime is adultery regardless of whether the woman consented to the sex act or not. Instead, the issue at stake is whether the betrothed woman is guilty of adultery. Should she die too? Or is she innocent? Um, just There's a quote from Nietzsche who says, the law is only interested in subjectivity to the extent that it establishes guilt. This would be an example of that. I realize that these two factors make it difficult, possibly ridiculous, to probe further into how this passage might speak to our own discourse around sexual consent, but we are going to try. Um, okay, so now to the substance of these verses. Um, I'm going to read through this relatively quickly. You have it in front of you. If there is a maiden that is a virgin betrothed to a man, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, you shall stone them with stones, so that they die. The maiden, because she did not cry, being in the city, and the man, because he has humbled or afflicted his neighbor's wife. So you shall be rid of the evil in your midst that a betrothed maiden um, had a sex act with another man. But if the man finds the maiden that is betrothed in the field, and the man take hold of her and lie with her, then only the man that lay with her shall die. But unto the maiden you shall do nothing, there is no sin worthy of death in the maiden. For as when a man rises against his neighbor and slays him, so is this matter, critical verse, this last one, for he found her in the field. The betrothed maiden cried out, Sa'aka Hanara, and there was no one to save her. Again, if you want to like write your an hour and a half of responses to this text, go ahead. Um, lots of difficulties here. But what I want to stress is that what we see here is that in the city, the Torah asserts that the woman is guilty. She must have not cried out. If she had, she would have been hurt. And presumably, the text takes it for granted that people would have come to the rescue. In the field, the Torah asserts that the woman is innocent, even had she cried out, there was no one to rescue her, no one to hear, no one to care, no one to respond. These examples are difficult for a lot of reasons. 
Is the environmental setting really all that matters in determining whether she was complicit or innocent? Couldn't a woman consent in a field and be raped in a city? Theoretically? Actually? What stands behind this law? Evidence that points to consent as opposed to coercion? Evidence of her efforts at resistance? The existence of rescuers? A lot of directions you can go with this passage. One early interpreter of the Bible, Philo of Alexandria, who lived in the first century BCE in Alexandria, interprets the city-field distinction as a metaphor. He posits that what the law actually requires is a determination of whether the woman willingly consented, using whatever evidence is available to make that determination. What matters is her consent. This is a critical interpretation, and I think some might want to promote this interpretation as a triumph of personal consent. It's not actually the direction that the rabbis focus on. You can turn the page. Um, rabbinic interpretations of this passage focus on the, important of, the importance of context. I would say context as a sort of prerequisite for thinking about consent. Okay, so we're going to look at this source at the top of page two. Source number two, Sifrei Devarim. This comes to us from the same rabbis who brought us the Mishnah. Um, we're in around the third century, the land of Israel. For he found her in the field. Say the rabbis. Thank God, say the rabbis. Is it possible that she is culpable in the city and exempt in the field? Really? That's all that matters, city or field? No, say the rabbis. The verse teaches, the betrothed maiden cried out, and there was none to save her. Thus, if there is someone to save her, whether in the city or the field, she is culpable. If there is none to save her, whether in the city or the field, she is exempt. So we see here that the field-city distinction for the rabbis is also a sort of metaphor. It's not a standing for non-consent versus consent. The question for the rabbis is, was this a context where there were people to save her? Was this a context where she could expect to be heard if she cried out? Would anyone have been able or, and willing to intervene? Will people hear? Will people listen? Will they care? Can they respond? Will they respond? All of those questions are critical before we can even start to evaluate whether an individual might have consented or not consented to an act. And just to sort of play out the implications of this passage for some context that we may have read about recently. A journalist could be in the middle of a hotel lobby, but still be in the field based on these criteria if there's no one who would actually respond. A lawyer could be clerking for an esteemed judge and still be, quote-unquote, in the field if no one would hear, take something seriously, and respond. This sends chills up my spine, but a gymnast could be in a doctor's office in a busy city with a parent in the room and still be in the field if it's not a culture of noticing, caring, responding. Before any conversation about consent or coercion can get off the ground, the rabbis stress that there has to be an environment that is a city, where there is a context and culture in which people care, 
and there is clear expectation, and I think more importantly, like it is known, it is well known that there is clear expectation of response to an act of sexual assault. Um, where have we arrived thousands of years after the city field distinction was laid down in the Torah? We see from the earliest rabbis that the city field distinction is not meant to overrule a woman's inner intentions, but that the possibility to give consent or express resistance is actually contextual. Was this an environment in which a woman could have expressed non-consent and expect to be taken seriously? And I would say the sort of constructive question that we need to ask ourselves coming out of this is, how do we build a city? How do we create a culture that cares, where a quote-unquote scream, in whatever form that takes, would actually catalyze a response? Now to probe a little further on this contextual distinction, I want to turn to a source that focuses on the importance of leadership in building such a city. And the source that focuses that the people in leadership positions set a tone about what a community or culture cares about. Okay, to lay the groundwork for this source that we're going to look at, and it is going to be worth it, but it is going to be a little tricky to get to it, um, we need to look at a passage in the Mishnah about married women being taken captive <coughs> and the Talmud's discussion of this. Um, okay, we won't get into this in great depth, but this discussion in the Talmud comes right after a Mishnah that actually quotes a little piece of the Ketubah. One clause in the Ketubah is where a man says, regarding his wife, that if she's taken captive, he will redeem her and um, bring her home and return, return her to him to be his wife again. Um, and one of the issues here in the Mishnah is that a captive woman may have been sexually violated by her captor. And the, the assumption here in the text is that if one can presume that this happened under coercion, then the woman is permitted to stay married to her husband after he rescues her. If there is some reason to believe that she may have consented to this sex act, under captivity, I realize this is difficult to imagine, um, then she would theoretically be forbidden to her husband. It's difficult, possibly problematic, um, but we need to lay out that groundwork to move on to a case where the Talmud discusses different kinds of captors. Um, so if, we, if you glance at, the, at source number three here, um, towards the bottom, of page two. Um, we're going to actually just look at, towards the end of the first paragraph, the line that starts, the sages taught. Four lines up from the bottom of that first paragraph on page two, source number three. The sages taught. With regard to women captured by the monarchy, they are considered to be like captives, thus permitted to their husbands. However, those stolen by bandits, are not considered to be like captives. So we have here monarchy, kingdom, and we have bandits. But isn't it taught in a brighter that the reverse is the case? We have a brighter that says the opposite. Um, 
those taken captive by a king are actually not considered like captives. They're forbidden to their husbands. Those taken captive by bandits are like captives. They are permitted to their husbands. Okay, says the Talmud, regarding the king, it is not difficult, the fact that we have two different teachings that say two different things. The first teaching, first Brita, is referring to the monarchy of Ahasuerus. That's where they would be considered like captives. Whereas the other teaching, we're on top of page three now, the other Brita is dealing with the case of Ben Netzer. Ben Netzer, not totally clear who he was, seems to have been a sort of lesser-ranked ruler of the eastern edge of the Roman Empire in Palmyra. Okay, so we have a distinction between Ahasuerus and Ben Nazar. Ahasuerus would be considered, captives would be considered like captives, permitted to their husbands. Ben Nazar, not considered like captives, forbidden to their husbands. Regarding bandits, goes, the Talmud goes on, it is also not difficult. The first Brayta is referring to the banditry of Ben Nazar. Um, as she might agree to his advances, hoping to become the wife of a king. That's one interpretation of what is happening here. Conversely, that other Brita is dealing with regular bandits. So we have Benneta, the bandit. Woman would be not treated like captives, forbidden to their husbands. On the other hand, all the rest of the bandits in the world would be considered like captives and would be permitted to their husbands. Okay, I realize that's complicated, but we basically have Three different cases. Ahasuerus, monarchy, women would be considered like captives. Bandits, women would be considered like captives. There's one case, Ben Nazar, where they would be considered not like captives, forbidden to their husbands. The Talmud has one last line here. Um, right, how could it be that Ben Nazar is called both a king and a bandit with respect to kings? He's like a bandit with respect to bandits. He's like a king. The point is that he's in sort of a medium place here between a king and a bandit. Okay, I realize it's complicated. If you didn't get it all, it's okay. The point is we have these different kinds of captors that affects um, the status of women and whether the presumption is that the sex act occurred under coercion or not. Okay, we're going to jump to source number five here that tries to make all of this clear and I think really brings home a point that is critical. Source number five on page three, the Ritva, Rabbi Yom Tov Astavili from Seville um, in the 13th century, tries to make this all make sense. The clearest explanation of all is that it is not referring specifically to the kingdom of Ahasuerus, but him and anyone like him as he was a, quote-unquote, lover of woman, Ohev Nashim. And anyone in his kingdom who raped a woman was not concerned about it. That line is a critical line. didn't really care about it. Therefore, anyone taken captive by Ahasuerus was considered like a captive where the presumption is that the sex act occurred under coercion. And, critical line here, the fact that they didn't scream, the fact that there's no observable sign of resistance, is because there was no one to save them. The woman in the kingdom of Ahasuerus know that nobody cares about sexual assault. Because that's what the king does all the time. 
Okay. In the case of bandits in general, women are permitted to their husbands, since it is a presumption that people don't kidnap women, except in a case where they are not rescuers. The very fact that bandits think that they can go and um, capture women, it indicates that they don't think there's anyone who would care or respond. Okay, so what are we left with here? From the Ritva, we see that the city versus field distinction isn't about whether there happened to be some particular bystanders around who could have swooped in on a white horse and val valiantly rescued the victim. This is not a local issue about individuals. It depends on the larger culture in which a particular city or field, so to speak, is situated. Ahasuerush was a lover of women. Because of this, nobody cared about acts of sexual assault in his kingdom. Note that the Ritva's language, lover of woman, Ohib Nashim here, could be quite broad. Probably, I think pretty clearly, would include Ahasuerush abducting every virgin in his kingdom. Um, but also could stretch to his demand for Vashti to appear naked in her crown before all of his guests. So it's actually a fairly expansive definition of what a leader has to do to set a tone where people don't take sexual assault seriously. When the supreme leader of a land sets a tone that he has sexual rights to any woman he wants, it can't help but pervade the entire ethos of the culture. What are the implications and ramifications of this approach in our own moment? hundreds of years after the Ritva, I don't think I have to say much about what it meant to me to find this passage in the Ritva a few months after seeing a video of our now president boasting about sexual assault. It's not just that it was a gross window into the, into the less than ideal private life of an individual, an individual who happens to have power, it is totally destabilizing. Suddenly we're not sure whether we're in a field or a city are we in a context where we can expect that people will hear, people will care, and people will respond about sexual assault? Or are we in Mahud Ahashverosh, to use the language of the Ritva? Um, we can think about some other contexts for applying the Ritva's approach to a culture that cares. Um, question about date rape. Is there an expectation that people will take it seriously and care if someone actually does not consent to sex after a date? Or is this a situation of, well, no one will care anyway, so what's the point of resisting? The main insight we gain from the city field distinction in the lens of the rabbis and the ritva is that we can't even begin to know whether or not there's consent. We can't sort of evaluate um, an individual until it is clear that there is a culture that would take it seriously if she said, no, there isn't any possibility of consent outside of a culture that takes assault seriously. So I think we have to know this ritva, not necessarily this particular ritva, but we have to know this insight about culture when we read Parshat Kitetse each year with the city and field distinction. And when we tell the Purim story each year. We have to think about the fact that exercising leadership means being proactive about setting the tone of a community that cares. One thing that I think is especially striking about the Ritha, and I understand that the case of abduction is perhaps an extreme here, 
Um, but I think it's nonetheless kind of inspiring in the Ritha is that he posits that in a community that cares, and where everyone knows that the community cares, these kinds of assault just won't happen. Right? He says, bandits only do their thing in a world where they know that there aren't rescuers. It's kind of amazing that he lays the groundwork for this dream, um, though he describes a case where a minority population, really a minority of a minority, Jewish women, are victims of an external culture over which they, and maybe even the Jewish people, have no control. The question he leaves us with is how do we build upon that dream? How do we take the message of this ritva to take responsibility for the culture in our own communities and the leaders we put in place and honor? Okay, I want to pause here, take questions, responses, other interpretations of this piece so far, the idea of the city, the fields, and building a culture that cares. I think, uh, thank you, Aviva. I think one of the main difficulties that I'm having as somebody who has you know, kind of gone through these texts and is, is hearing them again with new ears, thanks to your teaching, is that one of the biggest difficulties in, in positing a community that cares, I think there is a great deal of denial in communities that care. I think it can be out of great caring that somebody can say, I really can't believe, because I care so much, that these people that I care about and I'm connected to could do such a thing. So I, I, I think that I think we need to stretch beyond the binary of the community that cares versus the community that doesn't care. Great. I think that when we get to the piece about Abraham, that will be an opportunity to delve a little bit more deeply into this question. Thank you. Um, this may also come up when we delve into the piece about Abraham, but the, the thing that feels missing here is um, we have we have people like actors without any definition or characteristics or past or like things that would make us feel invested in them. There's victims and there's assailants and there's bandits and there's kings. But um, like, do these texts at all, or maybe do other texts speak to what happens for when, example, in the Jewish community, there's someone who is like given so much to the community through their wisdom or their music or whatever. Um, and it turns out that they're like a, a person who has also done things that are really despicable. And, and do these texts speak to how you act when people aren't flat, um, but when they're also your board members or your leaders or you know whatever? Great, okay, thank you. So maybe I'll respond to, to both of these. I, one thing that came up in this workshop I was at a couple of weeks ago with Fran Sopler, her, the zero tolerance approach, though it's not necessarily clear exactly what to do in a given situation to express care that sexual assault has occurred, right? So, and, and these texts that we've been looking at are talking about like capital punishment for adultery or um, speaking about an assailant whom the Jewish community has no control over. Right, Ahasuerus or bandits. Um, but when, right, that, that question of how do you show that there is 
no tolerance for this behavior, um, doesn't necessarily have to mean totally disowning or ignoring other contributions that a person has made. Right? But once there's that moment of excusing behavior, then basically the whole framework falls through. Right? If it's like, oh, but that person can get away with it because of XYZ contribution, that's, that's the end of knowing that we're in a culture that cares. Right? So I, I think it's possible. I mean, obviously, there's lots of conversations about this. And, and I realized that in some ways, as I was thinking about what to teach in these sessions, or in some ways, the question of like, well, how do you approach a community leader who has committed various acts? I feel like in some ways, that is an extremely live question. I didn't want to only focus on that question because I think that does sort of totally shift the perspective to how do you address the perpetrator and not first spend some time with the experience of the victim of assault. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, so it sounds like, me, um, this is just what I heard, so if we diagnose let's say, our culture right now as a field, does that mean that consent can't exist here? And I've heard that in like other like classes that there's no such thing as consensual sex in an environment that doesn't take this seriously. So I'm just wondering like how you and the rabbis would address that. Right, so I think that um, it's a strong way to put it and I realize my language is sort of a particularly strong way to put it. Again, within the context of the CIFRE, the point is, well, there can be no death penalty for the woman if it's, quote unquote, a field. So like, I think that's something we might be fairly comfortable kind of arriving at as a conclusion. I don't want to shut down the consent conversation. I just think it's important to realize how situated and contextualized that possibility of giving consent is. Um, and so I think some of that extreme language around it is to, to push back a little bit on a discourse that is like primarily focused on two individuals um, and sort of what is the evidence of their inner subjective state, consent or not. It's like, well, a lot of that, I mean, we're, we're aware of that in terms of like various power dynamics that exist when we talk about college campuses and professors and various things, but I think this just sort of expands the lens of the importance of context. Yes. Um, just curious, just linguistically, in the first uh, section of the bargaining, non-stick has the same word that is used with Nina and Japan, in which there's no question that she was taken against her will, and yet we're, it's equivocal here. Yeah. Thank you. This is hard. Um, yeah. So there, I mean, biblical scholars on the case of Dina are somewhat conflicted about whether it's clear that that was coercion. I would say what is most important in what you see here is that the, in the plain sense of the Torah, the word ina does not necessarily indicate that it is against, um, against the woman's will. It does indicate, I mean, here it indicates something that was inappropriate, illicit, Right, we will see it again in the case of rape of, a, of an unbetrothed virgin, um, where the similarity between those cases is just that her virginity was taken illicitly. 
So I think that we do have to kind of confront the fact that the word ina is not necessarily about it. Yeah, last comment. <clears throat> so I want to name as what I perceive to be problematic that this whole framework depends on whether or not she cries out. Um, so is there a textual basis for a community that cares even when she's silent? Okay, great, amazing, thank you. And I should have stressed this a little more. Yeah, the crying out piece in Varim is like possibly the most eerie and haunting thing for a million reasons. I feel like one of the first being like, well, in a case where a person is like freaked out, um, scared possibly for their life, like could be kind of paralyzed because of that. Right? That expectation of screaming is really, um, it's really difficult and impossible. So I, I think that that's where what you see in the Ritva is actually, yeah, it, it doesn't actually matter if she screamed or not, right? The whole point of what he's doing is saying, okay, she didn't scream. Why didn't she scream? She didn't scream because there was no one to save her, right? So it's not about, and, and this is what I mean, where there's lots of choices you could make in how to interpret Devarim. It's not about finding evidence of resistance for the rabbis, primarily. The question isn't, did she scream or did she not scream first? The question is, if she would have screamed, would there have been a response? And if the answer is no, then there's like empathy for a case where she didn't scream. Um, I'll, I'm not going to get to this in any depth, but the, the continuation of that passage in the in the Sifra, in the top of page two, that last line, um, the last line of, of text number two, she cried out to Aka, um, it excludes a case where she says, let him be, according to Abihuda. That's a very difficult line in this text, but I want to offer one suggestion, which might be too much of an imposition, but one suggestion is what he's saying is, okay, we have two possibilities. She cried out, or she says, let him be. But he doesn't say it excludes a case where she was silent. Right? It seems like one way to read this is the only situation in which she would be culpable is if she explicitly said, let him be, right? Gave some kind of affirmative consent to use anachronistic language, and not if she was just silent. Okay, that gets problematized in later texts also. If she said, let him be, did she really mean it? Was she just afraid? Um, but okay, thank you for raising that point. Okay, we're going to move on to a different section here. And, and I want to frame this section. We're going to look here at defining rape, defining such sexual assault as assault, using the language of assault. So it's with this frame in mind that we just saw that what matters most is people caring that a sexual assault occurred um, and there being some noticing and response to that, that I want to move on to the next set of legal sources. And this might be a little bit of a stretch, but what I want to show here is that when the rabbis read the passages in the Torah about rape of an unbetrothed virgin, which we're about to read, they didn't just read it as a civil monetary offense about her virginity. The rabbis decided to notice and care that a person's body was assaulted. 
Right, so I would say that, that this is, in the language of legal definition, there is an act of, I would say, leadership in deciding to interpret the Torah here that talks about rape, categorizing that as sexual assault against a person's body. This may seem like not that exciting, but I think it was actually huge. Um, okay. So there's two passages in the Torah that talk about a non-marital sex act with an unbetrothed virgin. One is in Exodus, one is in Deuteronomy, Devarim. Um, you have those on your page here in page number four, sources five and six. Um, and there's a debate in biblical scholarship as to whether these two cases are essentially the same or essentially different. I'm going to read through them now, briefly. Okay, Shema. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, as opposed to our betrothed maiden from before, he must make her his wife by payment of a bride price. If her father refuses to give her to him, he must still weigh out silver in accordance with the bride price for virgins. Okay, so there's this act of seduction and a payment and marriage. Um, in Dvarim, if a man finds a maiden who is a virgin who is not betrothed and sees her, seizes her, and lies with her, and they are found, then the man that lay with her shall give to the maiden's father fifty shekels of silver. She shall be his wife. Because he has afflicted her, he may not send her away all his days. Those are the two cases here. Um, both involve a monetary payment to the father, marriage, in one case explicitly the option of of um, of not pursuing that marriage if the father refuses. The temple scroll, which is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that reflects Second Temple era interpretation of the Bible, conflates these two passages, treats them as one, and does not seem to care whether or not the unbetrothed virgin consented to the sex act or was coerced. Her willingness or lack thereof in the sex act is apparently totally meaningless, um, in a case where her virginity is not already claimed by another man, she's unbetrothed. That is one choice of how to interpret the biblical text here. The rabbis explicitly differentiated between these two cases. They labeled the case in Shemot, in Exodus, seduction. The case in Devarim becomes rape. The essential difference between the two cases is whether or not this was against her will. Um, but that's a choice that's based around the language of tifasa, he seized her, which they read as ba'al korcha, against her will. Um, okay. There's some differences between the two cases and how the rabbis treat them, but what I want to focus on now is the ways in which the case of rape is considered a case of bodily assault or personal injury. So if you look now on page 4, sources 7 and 8, um, we see here the definition of, um, of seduction and rape um, and the payments that are made in each. So here we see that in the case of Mifateh, the seducer gives payment for shame, ruin, and the penalty, boshet begam uknas. The rapist additionally pays for pain, tsar. Um, Rabbi Dr. Judith Hauptman made this point years ago in her book, Rereading the Rabbis, that there is, in her words, nothing short of a revolution when the rabbis decide to treat 
these cases, and particularly the case of rape, as a case of an assault. Um, you see here payments that correlate between rape and personal injury. If you look at the next Mishnah, Bavakama, the eighth chapter of Bavakama deals with personal injury, lists all the payments for personal injury, including Nezek, Tsar, Ripoy, Shevet, Boshet, right? paying for damage, pain, healing, lost work, and shame. Um, so what's critical here is that when the rabbis read the text of the Torah that says there has to be a payment made, they're not just concerned with there being some kind of payment because of this illicit kind of stealing of virginity. They are intently focused on noticing what has happened, articulating and responding to the various aspects of damage to the body. Um, and I just want to pause here, right? Just notice, notice these words, pain, damage, shame, right? What do all these words mean in the context of, of sexual assault? The rabbis are interested in sort of noticing the various layers of this offense on a person's body. Um, and I'll get to this a little bit more later, but like already highlighting some of the discourse in contemporary media, discrepancies around language that is used, um, describing what has happened as pain or damage. We'll talk about that more, but just noticing the way in which um, these, these legal words become important in a way that they weren't in the biblical text. Okay, I want to build off of Rabbi Hauptman's point here by turning to the opening passage in the Talmud's discussion of personal injury. This is on page five. And this is what I mean by, if we're going to try to understand sexual assault in rabbinic sources, we don't only look at sources that are explicitly about um, women's bodies. We're going to also look at sources that are about bodies when they're assaulted and, and see how they apply to women as well. Um, okay, so what I think is fascinating here, and I don't think it's really been talked about enough, is that um, the Talmud, this is one of the most famous passages in the Talmud. The Talmud takes the case in the, takes this Mishnah that describes five payments for personal injury um, and asks, well, how do you know that you just make a payment? Maybe, according to the Torah, there should be a corporeal response, eye for an eye, not money for an eye. Isn't it kind of demeaning to just throw money at a person after an injury? Doesn't that kind of treat a person like an animal or a piece of property that was damaged? You can just sort of pay it off. That's the, that's the concern of the opening, studio, um, opening passage in the Talmud on this Mishnah. Um, and there's an extremely long discussion of how do we know that money is the appropriate payment in a case of, of, of assault, of injury, against a person. Um, okay, and we're going to look at just the very end, sort of the final proof in this discussion in the Talmud. If you look just two lines up from the bottom on page 5. Uh, sorry, a little more than that. Second line, page 5. Um, Ravashi said, the first Ravashi said, it is derived from the word tachat in place of, from the case of an ox. It is written here, an eye in place of an eye, ayin tachat ayin. It is written over there in the case of an ox who gores an ox, he shall pay an ox in place of an ox, shor tachat shor. 
Just as there the word tachat means money, so too here, eye for an eye, it actually means money, not literally an eye. Now the Talmud doesn't like this at all. Why is it fitting to derive a gezerah sheva, right, a legal similarity from the word tachat in place of, in the case of an ox? It should be derived from the case of a person. We're talking about a person being injured, not an animal. Um, and when it comes to a person, we know that the law is nefesh tachat nefesh. If one kills a person, then it's a life in place of a life. It's capital punishment. So the Talmud says maybe then we should make a derivation around damages, right, as opposed to death. It's, it's complicated. The Talmud is basically stuck here, trying to figure out why money is an appropriate payment for personal injury. Um, you can't treat the body like an animal. On the other hand, you can't treat injury like death. This is what is important. The final line in this famous sugya about eye for an eye actually being money, the final line actually brings in the case of rape. So now the last two lines on the page. Rather, Rav Ashi derives it, the fact that we pay money, from the words, tachat asher ina, because he has afflicted her. This is the case of a person, from the case of a person. Right? We're talking about a person, a woman, who has been afflicted. And it's a case of damages from damages. It's not a case of death. Right? And that is the closing line of this again. Now, why do I think this is so important? I realize it's a little complicated to follow. Why is this so important? Um, in this latest layer of this passage of the Talmud, the case of rape becomes the paradigmatic case of personal injury, bodily assault. But the fact that in the Torah it's a case that requires monetary payment, and you could have read the Torah to say, oh, that's like a payment for virginity. It's essentially because her virginity is the property of her father. This is just about money, something that's sort of in the realm of civil law. No, it is obvious to the Talmud here that rape is an assault on a human person. And because that's so obvious here in the Talmud, the case of rape can mediate this problem of personal injury in, in general. How can money be good enough um, as a consequence in a case of injury? Right? So here I think wholesale revolution, how to approach that biblical text that's our rape of a virgin, possibly solely about money along the lines of something more like property, to no, the rabbi's noticing there's an assault here that includes pain, and this becomes the paradigm of personal injury. Um, okay, right, to take this a little bit further, um, Maimonides, when he's codifying all these laws of personal injury, takes this case, the case of rape, as the source for why, in general, anybody has to pay for pain um, in case of injury. Right, says the Rambam, how do we know that a person who injures another must pay for pain as its own payment? Because it says, regarding the case of rape, because he has afflicted her. The same is true for everyone who causes pain to another person's body. One is liable to pay for the pain. So I want to stress, it's not, a, Judith Hoffman's point was like, oh, the laws of assault are applied to the case of rape. You see here that actually the case of rape becomes a sort of paradigm of assault, and particularly in the Rambam, and because of the pain that it causes. Um, okay. 
we could spend a little bit more time with this. There's a question about, is this only about virginity? Source 11 speaks to that a bit. I think it becomes clear in the Talmud that rape is considered an assault, not only in the case of a virgin. There's a certain piece of the payment that only applies in the case of a virgin, but actually the other payments about um, embarrassment, shame, or pain would apply in general. Um, okay, the second piece that I want to look at here is the cases and personal injury that are about boshet, causing embarrassment or shame in general. Again, these are not about women's bodies at all, right? but clearly would apply. And I want to stress this because, right, because of that voice that can stand up in a room, in a workshop on sexual assault and say, like, rape or sexual assault isn't something that is, that, like, exists as a crime in the Torah. I think it's sort of clear if you take these sources on assault seriously um, and personal injury seriously, of course it would apply to all sorts of cases that aren't particularly about virginity when it comes to sexual assault. Um, so you have a lot of sources here on um, embarrassment, boshet, for someone who is naked. This is sources 12, 13, and 14. What I think is very interesting here, the Mishnah says, one who embarrasses a naked person is liable. When the Talmud tries to understand what our case is, we end up with, in source 13, Rav Papa saying, what is this case of a naked person who's further embarrassed? It's a case where the wind came, lifted up his garments a little bit, so he's somewhat naked, and then a person came, lifted up the garments a little bit more, and embarrassed him. That is what it means to embarrass a naked person. The Tosafot here, in the medieval period, say, um, top, of, top of page 7, if he lifted up his garments himself, and then someone else came along and lifted them more, presumably, say the Tosafot, that person who came along and made that person more exposed would be exempt, because this person initially showed that he doesn't care about being exposed. He already had his garments lifted. Or perhaps, say the Tosfot, the Gemara just used the example of the most common case where a wind came, but the same would apply if a person had lifted his garment himself. Okay, complicated, technical. Why is this so important? This relates to, I think, the short skirt discourse. Right? And I want to say, right, when we look at the spectrum of what could count as sexual assault in rabbinic sources, if you take this source seriously and not only apply it to men's bodies, because why should this source only apply to men's bodies? If you go through the logic in the second half of this Tosfot, it would say, even if someone has exposed themselves a little bit, if someone else comes along and exposes them more, that person is guilty of a certain form of assault and has to make right, a payment here, a boshet payment. Um, so I, I just want to bring this source to kind of fill out this picture of what it means to approach sexual assault as assault. Right, and see that, that the, the laws about assault against the person's body in the Talmud are quite broad. Um, okay, I think that this framing brings up some of the differences, struggles, and defining the harm that is caused in cases of sexual assault. We saw in some of the coverage, media around Harvey Weinstein allegations, that there was some discrepancy between him acknowledging that he caused quote unquote pain, but women describing an experience of being quote unquote damaged. 
Right, what is at stake in these differences? Is pain something that's confined to the experience but is maybe fleeting? Is damage something more lasting? If these payments for injury that the Mishnah talks about affect things like loss in net worth or the ability to work, how would we account for the fact that so many cases of sexual assault and harassment involve women losing work by quitting their jobs to avoid a perpetrator but not advancing in a career because the cost is too high. I just want to play this out that the sort of scale um, range of the payments that we see in the cases of assault here, damage, pain, shame, um, give some language to be describing what the effects of sexual assault are. Okay, we're going to move on to our last section here and then I'll open it up for questions and comments. The last piece does something here that nothing else here has done. And this is kind of a little bit of a foreshadow of what we'll focus on next week. Um, I want to reflect briefly on what it means to try to find a voice in a culture that doesn't care. Um, and I want to share briefly what I remember so I feel so strongly the memory of what it felt like to watch Michelle Obama's um, Michelle Obama speaking up last fall um, in response to those videos about Trump boasting about sexual assault. I, I literally, like, my posture changed when I was watching her speak. Um, I sort of felt my head rise a little bit more on my shoulders when she was speaking up and speaking out against sexual assault. And I literally felt smaller when Trump was elected, just reflecting on those two things. I, I don't mean to get overly political, but <laughs> just in terms of the question of leadership and how leaders set a tone around this issue in particular. Um, right, so I bring that to, to say, like, wow, what does it mean to actually find a voice, hear a voice speak up? in a culture that doesn't care. Now, obviously, like, culture is complicated. There are lots of subcultures in America, cultures that care more, care less. But, but in this sort of overall um, context where there's some uncertainty or doubt about how much our culture cares. Right? And I think that this is sort of some of the heart of what is happening in the Me Too movement. Um, okay, so we're going to look at some sources here that relate to stories about Abraham and Sarah in their journey just after God has said, go forth in your journey for blessing. Um, and when Sarah becomes, Sarah is abducted by local rulers. When Abraham tells her um, to, to basically say that she's his sister, because Abraham knows that she's going to be abducted, right? And would rather not be killed as her husband, would rather Right, have her be known as his sister so that he won't be killed and instead um, will be rewarded monetarily um, for Sarah. So I think, right, obviously this is an extremely difficult story. Um, and I want to raise a couple of questions with it and then jump into a midrash that looks at this from Sarah's perspective. Um, is Avimelech, right, or Para, or the local rulers the sole perpetrators in this story, or is Avram also a perpetrator here, for simply accepting a reality that Sarah would be abducted, not trying to prevent that, and instead, right, setting this up to ultimately profit from that 
quote-unquote unchangeable reality, right? And I just, I think this speaks to some of our, well, Avram's one of our, about one of our ancestors, right? We love Avram, learn a lot from Avram, right? And here's Avram doing something that is so hard to imagine. And, and, and what I partly want to emphasize here is it draws our attention to the ways in which um, someone who is meant to be a protector, right? You look at that text in Devarim and say like, oh, well, if there's someone who could hear, then of course they would respond and say, right? Here it's like someone who's theoretically meant to be a protector, that close relative, someone you trust can end up victimizing someone close to them by just participating in a culture that doesn't care and assuming that there isn't really any alternative. Um, okay, we're going to look at a midrash here. This is source 16 that brings in Sarah's perspective on what it was like to be abducted. Um, and I first took this midrash seriously when I when I heard a drasha given by Rabbanit Chava Evans at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. She was an intern. Um, last year. Um, and I think this midrash is really important for a lot of reasons. The most important is that we're seeing something we haven't seen before. We saw legal sources trying to understand whether a woman screamed, why, why not, but this is the first text where we actually see the rabbis searching for a woman's voice and perspective in the context of sexual assault and coercion. Um, this midrash really wants to know what this experience was like for Sarah. Okay, we're going to look at this. Page 7, source number 16. Um, we'll start with 15, the verse in the Torah. The Lord afflicted Paro and his household with mighty plagues on account of Sarai, the wife of Avram. Al-Devar Sarai Eshet Avram. Literally, on the word of um, but in context, seems to mean on the account of. Okay, so we have a midrash that kind of runs with this language in the Torah. What do we mean by the plagues came on the word of Sarah? Um, midrash number one. Everyone was saying these plagues are because of the because of the matter of Sarah, the wife of Avram. What does all devar mean? It means everybody was talking about this. Pyro's house is being plagued, or he's being plagued because of what he did to Sarai, the wife of Abram. Rabbi Barachia said because he dared to remove the shoe of the noble woman. That's the kind of extent of this offense. Okay, that whole night, Sarah prostrated herself on her face, this is the language of prayer, saying, Master of the world, Abram went out with a guarantee. I went out on blind faith, meaning... When we left home together, Avram had a promise from you, God. That promise was, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless you. Everyone will be blessed through you. That was his guarantee. I, Sarah, says, I went out on blind faith. You didn't promise me anything. Avram is outside the ship, but I'm on the ship? I think, right, our ship here is a ship in the midst of a storm, right? Avram's the one who has the guarantee. He's not even dealing with the brunt of what it means to be on this journey to follow you, God. Here I am, I have nothing to go on, and I'm suffering. Um, God said to her, all that I'm doing, I'm doing for your sake. Bishvilech, ani oseh. Um, okay. 
think it's a provocative, powerful midrash for a number of reasons. One is it's really entirely meaningless to engage in any legal sources about sexual assault against women without noticing the primary problem of the loss of agency and having a goal of trying to recover um, women's agency. So it's a text that gets us there a little bit. Um, in the context of our Me Too moment, I think what matters most in this midrash is that the entirety of the midrash is based on the word davar, al davar, that there was speech, where there might not have been speech. Right? And at least a piece of this midrash is focused on the speech of Sarah. Sarah speaks in this midrash, and I think she essentially says something like, WTF? What's going on? This is what it means to go on a journey to get to know God and find blessing? I get objective. Um, now, I think God's response is kind of maddening. Well, I'm doing this all for you. Right? It's about sort of assuming that you have to submit to this kind of behavior to get ahead. Um, right again, think of sort of all the stories we've seen of like, well, I guess this is just sort of what happens. It's for my sake. I'm willing to take it so I can be the gymnast I want to be, so I can be the journalist I want to be, so I can be the judge I want to be. Um, and my only redemptive reading of this bishvilech is that maybe it's bishvilchen for your sake in the plural, right, where what she's subjected to and that process of everybody talking about it somehow leads to awareness that might shift a more systematic problem. Um, and shift a culture, right? Though it's still, I think, a loss that the victim has to speak up in this way and suffer in order for others to know a better reality. Um, I think the final piece that I want to say on this midrash, there's a lot that we could say, is this is a midrash about faith, right? And tells us that we can't really tell the story of Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish people's relationship with God, without consciously wading into what it implies about operating in a culture that takes sexual assault for granted. Right? This is part of, Stora's, of, of Sarah's narrative of this journey of getting to know God, is that like this is just a piece of it for her. Um, right? And I think that stresses that a lot of what we have to think about when we think about Jewish communities and when there is a Jewish community that maybe doesn't show that it cares, this can become a huge theological problem, right? I, um, I'm remembering talking with a student who lived in a kibbutz in Israel, and her sister, when she was in high school, um, was a victim of sexual assault from a, a sports coach. And what struck my student most was how the community just went on as normal. Everybody knew, but in the synagogue, everything was the same, the rabbi never said anything, and, and she found especially, like, she couldn't be in that synagogue and pray. There was sort of no possibility of trying to relate to God in a world where it was as if nothing happened and nobody cared. Um, so I, I think right, that some of what this Sarah Midrash brings us to, it's not just about particular victims who have a particular experience, there's a much more wholesale communal theological problem. Um, and this is what I think we have to be focused on when we want to be in a constructive role, building a community that cares, taking responsibility for language and definition, and trying to find and honor the voices of people 
who are victims of assault, right, and turn that into a story, a more redemptive narrative for him. Um, okay. Comments, responses, questions, disappointments, frustrations, hope, yes. I want to get back to I think that the, the Torah's narrative ex is extremely simplistic. I think that the rabbis are doing something to, to actually try to notice that, right? And say that there might be a reason to not scream that does not imply consent. Yeah. Two questions, if you don't want to um, But so the first one was, can you just help me understand um, the upshot of the Bhagavad Gita text again? Like, I just had trouble following the Bavakama question is probably less critical and definitely more complicated. The main point in that is just that the case of rape becomes the paradigm of personal injury and assault, right, which was a clear shift from just kind of the monetary lens of the Torah. Um, yeah, I agree. It's, well, yeah, how do you deal with this midrash and the idea that God doesn't care? This is the only thing I can say about this. I think that if you read part of what's happening in this story, as when God strikes with the plagues, like in a way it's too late and there's nothing we could say about God to sort of redeem God in the story. But in a way I think when God strikes with the plagues and this is so that everybody will know um, Paro did something wrong here by abducting Sarah. Now granted like the main concern is the text in the text is adultery. He abducted a married woman. Right, but if you can sort of push that a little bit towards, the problem is that he thinks he's entitled to any woman who walks into his land. And you have like plagues throughout the whole palace to respond to that, right? To read that as a microcosm of, an, of what will ultimately happen in the Exodus story. I think gives a little bit more weight to, um, yeah, Paro treating women like this is akin to enslaving a nation and demands plagues. And the point of those plagues isn't just the suffering, the point is everybody talking about it and learning and building awareness. So that's kind of the best that I can do. And I would say like that the continuation of that Midrash imagines that there's a malach, there's an angel there who's hitting Paro whenever Sarah says to do it. And now I feel like it's more of the fantasy of this kind of powerlessness and vulnerability just not happening in the world. Um, I think that's an ideal kind of fantasy. 
and the story of, well, like, minimally, the result should be that everybody knows, is aware, and cares about it, sort of God catalyzing that. But yes, I agree that it's, it's really hard. Okay, we're going to take three more comments, questions. Yes. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm also a bit confused about the Baba Kama uh, source eight and also source seven. So source seven seems to couple the uh, Nefeteh uh, as if there are two stories, two similar stories. There's only this small part of Inui which makes them different, but it's actually the same thing. But then you, you see the source eight. Um, with source nine, you take it to be a, a torts issue. Like these are asking two different issues. This mm -hmm. is, we're taking the, the rape part, we're making it Nezikin issue. Um, but so I was a bit confused about that because you have the list of, of, of Nezikin, of the, the, the damages that you take. And it's very, there's only two elements that are the same. Um, and I wonder what that teaches us about the difference between the regular Yeah. Okay. So, so I think two points. The point of the how di how similar or different are seduction and rape for the rabbis? That's basically there's basically a big machloket about this between two scholars, Rabbi Hauptman and Roni, Dr. Roni Yerushai in Israel. Roni Yerushai in Israel stresses like actually they seem pretty similar, and sort of de-emphasizes um, an approach that takes consent more seriously for the rabbis. I, I think that what you see here is um, they do look somewhat similar, but they're actually treated very differently. In some ways, the, the crime of mefateh is more of a crime against the father. right? If she consented, it becomes a crime against the father. The crime of rape is a crime against her. You see that playing out in the question of an orphan, if there, if there is no father. All of those payments for rape are still applicable. The ones for seduction are not. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, the main point I'm trying to make in, in source number nine here is that um, the case of rape is treated as chabala, it's treated as personal injury. It's nizikin in that it's not about death, it's about damage, but it is not about property. She, she doesn't get all, all the things that you would get for chabala. She only gets two of them. The, the things, right, the things that aren't on the list are... Shevet and Ripoy. Yeah, we can talk about this more. It's a little bit complicated, but I, I think the assumption is that those wouldn't necessarily apply in these cases. If it did, I, I think those payments would still be appropriate. Yeah, Kira. So we quickly sort of glossed over source 11, right? Which is the Gemara about Bulgarit. And so the small question is, frankly, does Bulgarian mean that she is not a virgin? Right? Is that the distinction? Or is it just about age of majority? And the bigger question is, is I wonder, considering the introduction that you gave, talking about how Torah informs our culture and how culture might be more determinative than how we respond, what are the obstacles to, to having a Torah discourse about this when we may have a radically different emphasis on the value of virginity in our discourse right now as there was and maybe still is in parts of the Torah community 
that are engaged with these sources? And how do we make our discourse reflect that different emphasis and that maybe a transition to more sex positivity outside of, of marriage? Um, and and, and how, does, how do you think that problem, or that question, not problem, how do you think that question impacts how we have this conversation? Yeah. Great, we'll spend one minute on this. Um, I, yeah, so I think in source number 11, I think it is fairly clear. Certainly this is how Ronit Jirshai reads this. Maybe it's an overreading, but that, the, but that Bogarit is not, a, a woman who has reached that age of Bogarit is not considered to necessarily be a virgin, and that sort of opens up this text to say like, okay, in the Torah, it's kind of focused on virginity. In the rabbis, that's a piece of a larger picture. But I, I guess I'm kind of pushing for this reading that once it's defined as Kabbalah, as assault, then a lot of these sources are still alive without that virginity picture. And that's why I would especially shift to those sources about Boshet, right? And just exposing someone more than, more than they want to be exposed um, as bringing this discourse a lot more alive outside of that. I'll pause there. Um, okay, I think that we should end very soon. Maybe I'll take one last comment. Well, I'll, I'll just start with a brief comment and then ask a question. The, the comment is that, it's, that there are questions here for me as to what is the culture? Is it a Jewish culture, Jews and Jews? Or are, is it significant that in some of these stories we have a Jew and a non-Jew? Usually the Jew is uh, the, the non-Jew is the one who's behaving badly, so there's the question of whether teaching Torah will lead to doing the right thing. Um, and there's also the question of our culture. Lots of these stories are no means no kind of stories, whereas we live in a society where now in New York State we have a law of affirmative consent mm -hmm. that's required at least on college, university campuses. Um, my, my question though is about question about and you spoke of rape as a paradigm for assault, and I wasn't quite clear if you were saying that approvingly, that it sort of elevates the importance of rape, or disapprovingly, that it actually diminishes the uniqueness of the pain caused by rape? Mm -hmm. Right. I was mainly saying that that's, that seems to be a really big shift, or at least a choice in how, interpret the, how to interpret the Torah, that this isn't just money for virginity, this is money that's part of a personal injury payment. Um, and to say that like, that doesn't just happen to apply to the case of rape, but that's actually like such a huge reframing that it becomes the basis for other laws in, um, in personal injury. To me, that just says a lot about, like, of course, we're going to notice that what has, happened, what has happened here is an assault against a person um, and, not, and, and isn't just about virginity. Right, so, so that's where I think you really see that focus on assault compared. Yeah, I, my main point in that, in that part of this discussion is that like, it is an exercise of leadership legally to care and to notice that what has happened in this case, which you could have ignored in the Torah, you would have not thought of that as assault, to name that as assault is already exercising some level of um, being a community that cares. Okay, we're going to stop here. I invite you to come back next week for more creative readings. And I think this responds a little bit to Judah's point about what are the limits of some of I'd say that there are limits in looking at these legal sources. I've tried to spell out ways in which 
offer language and lenses for thinking more creatively. <coughs> but next week we're going to look more at theological narrative text to think about what it would mean to build a constructive, redemptive narrative here. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.